couple of weeks ago at the New York State Fair, the largest bagel ever baked, 868-pound bagel, hit the uh, record in the Guinness Book of World Records by Brugger's Bagels Incorporated. Took 900 gallons of water to bake that thing. And uh, I was reading the article and I thought, you know, somebody's got too much time on their hands. <laughs> but it set forth another principle, and that is we're always trying to outdo one another. Bigger and better is the motto. It would seem that each generation of the children of Israel were trying to outdo each other when it came to sin. It was getting worse and worse until finally God stepped in, had to judge, and the Babylonian captivity ensued. Exploiting of the poor, abuse of leadership, murder, Deceit, lies, all of those are the theme in chapter 59. Now you may remember that chapter 58 began the break, began the last part of the book of the prophecy of Isaiah. And the theme of that last section, Isaiah 58 to the end of the book, speaks about sin, judgment, forgiveness and restoration. All of those themes are presented in the last part of the book and all of those themes are present in this chapter, chapter 59. You know, Isaiah had a tough job because he was called upon to bring comfort to the nation and at the same time, in certain occasions, to bring rebuke to these people. And so he would stand before them and give them message after message And there were times, frankly, when the children of Israel just didn't want to hear it and would turn a deaf ear toward it. And though the prophets spoke over and over again in the name of the Lord, the people didn't want to listen. I heard a story of Dwight L. Moody, the great famous evangelist from Chicago century ago. He was invited to speak at a church that was notorious for some of the people getting up and walking out before the end of the service. So he began his message by saying, this morning I'm going to divide my comments into two. I will address two different audiences. First, I will address sinners. And then I will address the saints. So he spoke to unbelievers and gave a gospel message. And then he marked it by saying, now I'm done speaking to the sinners. And if the sinners would like to leave, they're free to leave. I'm now going to address the saints. (laughs) The leadership told him that for the first time in that church's history, no one left the service early. (laughs) Well, Isaiah speaks to literally a captive audience. They have been taken captive and they will read portions of the prophecy while they are captive in Babylon for the sins that are mentioned in this chapter. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Just notice, if you will, the reference to God's hand and God's ear. 
It doesn't mean, don't picture in your mind that God literally has hands like you and I have them or physical ears like we have them any more than when it says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, that God is actually with pupils looking around or the wings of the Lord. Don't picture any of that as literal. All of these are called anthropomorphisms. It's a wonderful way of God letting us know about his attributes in human language. The hand of the Lord, we can relate to that. The ear of the Lord, speaking of listening, we can relate to that. So we're talking about God, and he is put in the Bible, often in human language, for our benefit. He says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. I've often wondered about nursery rhymes, haven't you? They're morbid, aren't they, some of them? Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown and Jill came tumbling afterwards. What kind of a nursery rhyme celebrates a sustained skull fracture? And there's a lot of them like that, but there is one nursery rhyme that rings true of the human race. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. You know the one, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. That is the history of our race, the history of the world. We have had a great fall. Adam's sin caused an upset and a breaking of fellowship between man and God. And that breaking of fellowship must be bridged. Otherwise, there is no relationship. I read a statistic that says 70% of Americans pray, 57% of Americans say they pray every single day. And while we might hear that and go, great, revival, don't get too excited. A lot of those prayers are a waste of time. It's not that God can't hear. It's not that uh, he can't understand. It's not that he can't perceive. It's that there is a separation between man and God. So that prayer is a family privilege And the relationship will be established when the person comes to a place and utters, God, forgive me of my sins. I want to be your child by faith in Jesus Christ. Now a relationship is developed. And now the Lord will hear. Because that gulf has been bridged. Now, even when it comes to God's people, there can be a separation. David once noted in the Psalms, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That is, we can uh, do certain things that we know are wrong, that when we commit them, we break fellowship with God and we must confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that's important that we bring those before the Lord and clear the decks, keeping short accounts with the Lord. My ear isn't heavy that it cannot hear. My hand is not short that it cannot save. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Now, what are those sins, those iniquities that separated? Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood. 
that seems to indicate the sin of murder. And your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. Sins of the speech. Remember when you go to the doctor and the doctor would say, stick out your tongue? You ever wonder why? It's not that he gets off looking at the tongue. It's that doctors can look at the tongue and it indicates what's going on in the rest of the alimentary canal, the stomach, the rest of the, the body, so that the tongue is an indicator of what's going on on the inside. So it is with our speech. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And their perverse speech indicated the relationship that they were lacking with the Lord. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. There was indifference in the land. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. In other words, God is addressing a group of people who have both disgusting lives and deceitful lips. And here's, here's the real kicker. These were supposed to be God's people. These were God's people. The prophet is speaking to the nation who should know God. But they're far from God. One of the saddest sights to see is those people who um, get on in their relationship over time with the Lord. They're seasoned saints but they seem to lose over time their saltiness. They, they tolerate more sin than even they did as younger believers. There was such at one time a thirst for holiness and righteousness, but over time there's a laxity that takes place. And I've noticed this in some Christians as they get more mature in the Lord. Jesus wrote to the church of Thyatira, saying, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. What was their sin? Is that they tolerated iniquity in their midst. And that is one of the problems that was going on at this time. They hatch vipers' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, A viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. All of their activity, in other words, is unproductive. All of their works is like a a flimsy web that can't protect them, can't secure them. Now, this verse highlights something. Look back at verse 6 where we read, Nor will they cover themselves with their works. This highlights, at least in principle, one of the precarious positions that the modern Jew finds himself in. For the Bible says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And for the last 2,000 years, there hasn't been a temple in Jerusalem. We know that sacrifices have not continued to be Uh, sacrificed on the temple. Jesus ended the sacrifices effectively. But because the nation hasn't turned to Jesus Christ, they're faced with a problem. 
And their solution to the problem is to try to cover their sin with their own works. Paul said, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They haven't submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. They're going about trying to be justified in their own righteousness. So Rosh Hashanah has just passed and Yom Kippur is on the way. And every Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement in Israel, since there is no sacrifice, no shedding of blood, the modern Jew says, the rabbis say in the synagogues, it's a time of reflection, a time of meditation. Think about your past year. Think about where you've fallen short. The good versus the bad. And meditate on the good. And if there are people that you uh, need to ask forgiveness, go ask forgiveness. If there's certain deeds that can be done, go do them. And the point, the idea, is to try to balance out the evil deeds in the year with the good deeds of the year. Violating a very basic tenet of their own faith without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. Now, we know what the solution is. It's the blood, the precious blood of the Lamb that has been slain, Jesus Christ, their Messiah, our Savior. But we read here, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their feet, verse 7, run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. In other words, their wounds are self-inflicted. The path that they're on, the crooked path, are paths they made, they chose. They've done this to themselves. God warned them. The prophet was there. Other prophets came. But instead, they chose the crooked paths. Just about a month ago, a doctor in Austin, Texas, performed surgery on himself. I read the article and I was fascinated. And I read, as I read it, I thought, why? Well, he was a plastic surgeon in Austin, Texas. And he decided to do local anesthesia and give himself liposuction, a fat reduction procedure. The article failed to spell out really why he did it, just that he did it, and that, of course, he was sore afterwards. Well, as I read it, I thought, dummy, the wound, the pain is self-inflicted. You cut yourself. You did it to yourself. It wasn't a matter of life or death. You chose that path. That's what the prophet is saying to the nation. It's a path you have chosen. Now, Paul the Apostle in the New Testament takes verse 7 and 8 and quotes it in Romans chapter 3. And he lifts the picture out of the local context of a photograph of Israel's sin and says the entire world is guilty. Of sin, saying the way of peace they have not known, they're swift to shed blood, etc., etc. It's a picture of the entire human race. Now, in verse 9, Isaiah assumes a different role, and it's important to notice it. What he does, instead of speaking of them and they, third person, 
He puts himself into it. He'll say us, we. And he takes and identifies himself with the nation, with the sins of the nation, which is very, very important. As a prophet, he wasn't standing from an ivory tower denouncing people, fingers pointed. He became a part of the problem in confessing the sin of the nation. Nehemiah did this. Daniel did this. Notice the change. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in darkness or blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. There is an honest picture of the world in which you and I live. The world is dark. Now, I don't know if you describe it that way. Certainly, uh, the secular humanist would probably not describe it in those terms. The secular humanist would say, oh, oh no, we're going to get better and better and better as time goes on. Actually, about a century ago, there was much more optimism internationally and nationally, much more than there is today. There was an idea prevalent about 80 years ago plus of social and moral evolution. That we, by our education, we, by our advancements, are going to make for ourselves a better world. We're, we're going to create a golden age. A utopia is right around the corner. That was the idea of lots of social thinkers, a social and moral evolution. Now, that isn't quite as prevalent as it was back then. And you might say, well, whatever happened to that thinking? Well, World War I happened to it. World War II happened to it. The Korean War happened to it. Vietnam happened to it. Uh, nuclear proliferation happened to it. The AIDS virus happened to it. 9-11 happened to it. And now we're standing around with each new generation and we're forced to say we're in darkness. We grope for something more. We need enlightenment. Isn't it funny how years and years ago, before the Renaissance, before the age of enlightenment, we called a period of history the Dark Ages. Meaning we have failed intellectually. We need more intellectual light. Actually, every period of humanity has been a dark age. This is a picture of the world, of humanity apart from God. And notice what the verse says in verse 10. We are as dead men in desolate places. That's exactly how Paul described the world in Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. This world, you and I were born dead on arrival. The unbelieving world isn't just sick, it's dead. Uh, you, you can't make it better by self-help programs or... Um, some kind of psychological procedure or wishful thinking needs to be saved. Somebody once said, give a person a great education, send them to the best schools, and you'll make a smart sinner. Give him wealth, and you'll make him a wealthy sinner. 
Send him to a psychiatrist and you'll have a well-adjusted sinner. But take that person to the foot of the cross and you'll have a saved sinner. That's the thing that removes the darkness and brings us into the light. Now, in verse 10, again, it says, We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. Do you remember when Paul was preaching on Mars Hill in Athens? He was there in the Areopagus, that elite forum of philosophical thinkers. And he spoke to them about the human condition. He says that God has pre-appointed our times and seasons and determined the boundaries of our habitation. And he went on to say, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. In other words, what Paul said is God, the creator, has placed within each of his created beings, us human beings, an empty spot. Later on, Paul will say that God created us subject to vanity, empty inside. So that in our emptiness, we would realize, hey, I'm empty. Hey, I'm in darkness. Hey, I'm looking for something much greater than I have where I am at this point. In hopes that they might find him, though, Paul said, he's not far from any one of us. I've heard people often say, well, I'm seeking for God. Well, i got news for you. God isn't lost. The truth is, God's been seeking for you for a long time if you don't know him tonight. That's why I have have problems with the whole terminology of um, a seeker church or a seeker service. Because people say, well, we're seeking the Lord. The Bible says no one seeks after God, not one. It's God who's seeking us. Men are groping in darkness so that in that that dark, black, groping period of their lives, they would look out to find the purpose and meaning of life, which is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so... We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. Now, hold on. I just lost my place. Verse 11. Yes. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before us or before you. And our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. As for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. The truth is fallen in the street 
and equity cannot enter. So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice, and saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. The Lord looked and saw there was no justice. Now, if you're a child of God for any length of time, after a while you become more sensitive to the fact that our world is dominated by sin and by even sinful decisions that are made, even in courts of law. And we read the renderings of judges that seem so often to side with criminals and not protect those who are innocent. I read a true article about a man from North Carolina who bought a very expensive box of cigars. And then he had them insured for lots of different things and, among other things, for fire. No joke. As soon as the policy was signed, he went out and he smoked that very expensive box of rare cigars. After he smoked them, he filed an insurance claim, stating that through a series of very small fires, his box of cigars was gone. He filed the claim. The insurance company denied it for obvious reasons. They figured out what was going on. He smoked it. So he sued them, and he won. The judge said, I know it sounds frivolous, but the insurance company did give him an insurance policy. It is legitimate, and there's nothing in the policy that states what is legitimate or illegitimate fire. So he won. The insurance company had to pay him $15,000. You say, where's the justice in that? We cry out for justice when we read that. But here's the good part. Here's the best part. As soon as he cashed the check, collected the $15,000, the insurance company sued him for 24 counts of arsony. (laughs) It was brought before the same judge. They had the testimony in a court of law. They had the cashed check. And he was sentenced to 24 months in prison and $24,000 that he had to pay back to the insurance company. We read that and we go, justice was served. Now it says that the Lord looked. He saw it. It displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him, his own righteousness, it sustained him. It seemed that nobody in the nation was appalled at the deterioration. Nobody was championing the cause of God. No one saying anything, nobody praying. And God looked down and saw their condition, saw that nobody could help their condition. And here's the picture. God is rising up and he is going to... Um, incur salvation with his own arm, with his own strength. Again, it's sort of like Ephesians. You were dead in trespasses and sins 
in which you once walked according to the course of this world. And, and it goes on to give the black, dark description of us before Christ. Then it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, with the great love in which he loved us. In other words, God saw our condition dead, helpless, unable to help ourselves. And God stepped in to bring salvation that we could never bring on our own. So the difference is the difference between our own righteousness or the righteousness and salvation that he brings. Do you remember the story where Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray? One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee uh, spoke, it would seem, out loud. And he said, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially like that tax collector over there. And he listed off all the things that he did. I fast twice a week. I pray, etc. And yet... The tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes toward heaven, but he pounded on his chest and he said, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man went away justified while the Pharisee did not. And so God here with his own arm, with his own strength, is the promise that he would bring salvation and his own righteousness, it sustained him. You know, I'm going to love heaven because there'll be no bragging there. Nobody's going to uh, rattle off the things they've done for God or how important they were to God while on this earth or why they deserve to be in heaven. It's just going to be a worship session of God's righteousness, His strength, His arm, His salvation. For He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and he was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands will fully repay. When Jesus Christ comes the second time and the book of Revelation, chapter 19, he highlights that event. It says in that chapter that his vesture, his garments, were dipped in blood and that he judges and he makes war. Now, here we read that he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing. Revelation 19, his vesture is dipped in blood. And some read that and suppose that is indicative of his own blood shed on the cross. It is not. It is the blood of his enemies when he comes again at that battle of Armageddon. To get a preview of that, and I'm sort of cheating by taking you ahead, look at chapter 63 of Isaiah. It's a preview of that coming attraction, the judgment of Christ at his second coming. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury 
their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. So the Prince of Peace that Isaiah foretold will come the second time, not humble on a donkey, but powerful, executing vengeance on the enemies, the Antichrist, the armies that are aligned with him, the false prophet. And he will come to judge and to make war. Revelation 14, Revelation 16, call this Armageddon. And uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet are destroyed or at least taken out at that time. So shall, verse 19, they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard or a banner, an ensign, against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from righteousness in Jacob, says the Lord. Now, there's a great principle in that verse. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord will raise up a banner against him. Again, the banner is the ensign of war. The principle is this. God allows Satan to have a fairly long chain, a fairly long rope, to have a certain amount of latitude and the ability to wreak havoc upon the earth. But there is a point at which God will step in, raise up his banner, march for war, come and defend his own. It's something to look for when you're struggling, when you're facing spiritual warfare in a battle. Look for the standard to be lifted up by the Lord. Ask for the standard to be lifted up. Don't go to battle on your own strength. But in the power, in the might, in the strength of the Lord, the Lord will raise up a banner against him. Now, you notice verse 20 is the prediction of the Redeemer. Remember that term, the goel is the Hebrew word. Kinsman, Redeemer. It speaks of somebody in a family somebody related to those who needed redemption, someone who was willing and able to pay the price. That's the Redeemer. It's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. The Redeemer will come to Zion. When did the Redeemer come to Zion? Well, he's going to come twice. He came once already. He's coming back. The first time he came, he stood on the Mount of Olives, and then he rode a donkey into Jerusalem. And in the Gospel of Luke, he proclaimed his entrance to the city. In fact, he held them accountable for knowing the exact time that he came to Mount Zion. For Daniel the prophet predicted that time. In Daniel chapter 9, that from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, shall be 69 weeks of years, or literally, boiled down in today's 173,880 days from the going forth of a commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, from March 14th, 445 B.C. to April 6th, 32 A.D., exactly those number of days, Jesus held them accountable to know the day the Redeemer would march into Zion. He said, if only you would have known the things that make for this thy peace. If only you would have known this day. Now, when he comes the second time, he's coming to the same place. 
Jesus ascended into heaven off the Mount of Olives. And the disciples were standing there in Acts chapter 1, gazing up into heaven. And the angel said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who left will come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Now, when Jesus comes the second time, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will break in two. And that'll be the beginning of the end as far as the tribulation is concerned, as far as this world is concerned, and it will usher in the great millennial kingdom that Isaiah spoke so often about. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants, descendants, says the Lord, from this time forth and forever. Now, in Isaiah chapter 60, we have a change. There's no note of rebuke. There's no criticism as there was in chapter 59, which outlined their sins and their failures of the past. It's all changed in this chapter because the theme is the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. The theme is peace and prosperity for Zion, for the nation of Israel. I think this chapter, along with a few others, should be read regularly, especially after all of the news reports we get about the suicide bombings all over the West Bank, all over Jerusalem, and the hassles that that country has had for so many years. Because the best is yet to come. And that's why I do recommend going on a trip to Israel. You say, oh, but Skip, I'm going to make it there in the kingdom age. I'm going to make it there in the millennium. I'm going to see Jerusalem in all of its glory. You're right. You will. Then it will truly be the holy land. But I like to have a before and after view in my mind. I can't wait to stand there in the millennium and go, wow, this place has had an extreme makeover. To watch what the Lord is going to do with it. So chapter 59 closed with the promise, the Redeemer will come to Zion. Chapter 60, he has come. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Again, I want you to notice something in that text. It says, your light has come. That's past tense. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. That's present tense. Now, here's what's interesting. There is in the Hebrew language the understanding of the prophetic tense. What that means is often God, through the prophets, will speak of of an event not yet occurring as if it has already passed. It's already over. It's already done. It's already God's crossed over to the other side as far as he's concerned even though it hasn't happened yet. That's why when we get to Isaiah 53, which we already read, we read so often the prophetic tense. He was wounded for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. As if it has already happened. Well, in God's purview, it already has happened. We live our days, Psalm 90 tells us, as a tale that has already been told. So the use of the prophetic tense, even here. 
I think one of the reasons God does this so often is just to demonstrate to us his wonderful attribute of omniscience, precognition. He knows everything in advance before it happens. Now, I'll tell you, that's wonderful solace to me. Because whenever I'm going through something that surprises me and is a trial for me, I can think back to this attribute of God and think, this didn't take God at all by surprise. He allowed this to come in my life. He must have a purpose for it. He knows all things. The great sovereign nature and character of God. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you. And you'll find out the you refers to Zion in just a minute. And his glory will be seen among you. The Gentiles will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. It seems so often when darkness is just about ready to envelop and overwhelm, God sends his light. When Jesus came the first time, the people of Israel were enshrouded with the darkness of Greek philosophy, the darkness of the Roman Empire, and the light shone forth. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When Jesus comes the second time, at the end of the tribulation period, with us, his saints, it will be at the end of the darkness of the tribulation, the dark, tyrannical reign of the Antichrist. Jesus will come. Light will come. It will shine and arise upon that land. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They shall gather together. They shall come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant. Your heart shall swell with joy. Because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. So here's a picture of Jerusalem lifting up her eyes, so to speak, seeing her sons and daughters coming from afar, regathering, repopulating that city. Also, Gentile rulers and Gentile kings will come and bring their tribute, their gifts. All the nations, even the Arab nations, you'll notice in just a few verses. I'll never forget a few years ago, I was preaching in Baghdad to a Christian church. It was around Christmas time, and I asked the fellow who took me, the missionary who lived in Lebanon, Sammy Dagger. I said, Sammy, uh, give me just a little bit of um, uh, uh, direction here for this message that I'm going to preach tonight. What can I speak on? He said, speak on anything you want except Israel and God's plan for Israel. I said, well, that leaves, uh, that takes a lot of the Bible out. Because it's all over the Bible. He says, I know, but keep in mind where you are. It's very very sensitive to that issue here. And as I was mulling over the text I was going to share, and I was thinking of the statement he made, I thought of the future, what Isaiah predicted, when all of the nations will flow into Jerusalem, into Mount Zion, when the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. When there will be a theocratic kingdom set up in Israel, and it just it well I I, I chuckled as I looked over the audience that night, knowing that, thinking that, and couldn't wait 
thinking, I can't wait for the day when the Messiah will be worshipped and the Jewish people will be vindicated in that land in that time. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, those from Sheba, shall come. Now, those mentioned in verse 6 are descendants of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, some time elapsed, and wise men from the east came bearing Jesus' gifts, gold, incense, frankincense, and myrrh. When Jesus comes the second time, ruler over all the earth, it won't just be kings from the area of Persia, but it would seem from all over bringing tribute to him. Gold, And incense, but notice what's missing here. Myrrh. If you do a little research in a Bible dictionary, you'll discover that myrrh was typically an embalming fluid. It was presented to Jesus, and we can only think that at first when Mary saw it, it must have mystified her. You're bringing my son embalming fluid. Well, thank you very much. What a kind gift for a baby. But it was prophetic, wasn't it? Because that myrrh spoke of the fact that that baby would grow up and become the sacrifice for the sins of the world. It spoke of his death. It spoke of his sacrifice. When Jesus comes the second time, there's no need of myrrh. But gold and incense, gold is the king of metals, Thus, the metal for kings. Incense used by the priest in the temple. Frankincense, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Speaking of the fact that the priesthood of Christ, the kingship of Christ, is still in effect. And the flocks, verse 7, of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. Now, Kedar was the second son of Ishmael. The second son of Ishmael. And they eventually settled in the area of Kuwait. Here's something interesting. Saddam Hussein traces his genealogy back to Kedar, the second son of Ishmael. As did Muhammad, the founder of Islam. One of the descendants of Kedar. So I find it fascinating that the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. In the kingdom age, during the millennium, flocks will be brought to Jerusalem for the reinstituting of sacrifices in the millennial temple. This bothers some people. Here's the question. Why would there ever be a need post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, in the kingdom age, just before uh, the glories of the eternal state, why would there ever need to be sacrifices in a temple? I believe they look back to the cross. Just like the sacrifices in the Old Testament were prospective, they looked forward, the temples in the kingdom age will be retrospective. In other words, Israel, all of the sacrifices that were given from of old spoke 
of the cross, of the atonement. And all those sacrifices will simply be memorials speaking of the fulfillment of the cross, a retrospective look. Who are these who fly like a cloud, like doves to their roosts? Surely the coastland shall wait for me. The ships of Tarshish shall come first to bring your sons from afar, the silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Now, most commentators believe that this verse refers to looking out from the Mediterranean coast and seeing the sails of the ships like clouds emerge on the distance and come. Speaking of these kings and people bringing tribute in the kingdom age. But several years ago, the Jews that were flown in from the eastern parts of the world, Asia, Russia, etc., looked at this verse and claimed it as a fulfillment of prophecy as American airplanes took loads of them and flew them into Tel Aviv. Saying, quoting this verse, who fly like a cloud and doves to their roosts. They saw that as God's personal fulfillment to them in the regathering of Israel back to the land. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore, your gates shall be opened continually. They shall not be shut by day or by night that they may bring you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. God is speaking of the restoration of the nation of Israel, the absence of all violence, all terrorism. First time I went to Israel, I went as a part of a group from Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa many years ago. I remember the roadblocks, the security checks. I remember going to bed at night on the kibbutz and hearing the rat-a-tat-tat of the machine guns just a few miles away north in Lebanon. When I went back the second time, security was a little bit tighter, and when I entered the airport at Tel Aviv, they saw my passport that I had gone there once before and that I was coming again, and they said, why are you coming back? I went another time to Israel, and we were out by the Damascus Gate, And all of a sudden, the crowd got restless. There was a large crowd outside the entrance to the city, the old city of Jerusalem. And it seemed that somebody had gone through the crowd and taken shots at different people, killing a few people in the crowd. And you could see the gates of the city close as the Israelis took control of that area once again to control the flow of crowds in and out of the city. Now, I know that this is not a good advertisement for our tour to Israel coming up. (laughs) And I believe the Lord will protect us. But this speaks of the future. All that we know now in terms of terrorism and the, the needed constraints for security will be absent. Gates will be open continually day and night in the kingdom age for the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Also, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing down to you, 
And all those who despised you shall fall prostrate on the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many nations. Now in the Bible, Zion, it's mentioned here in verse 14, originally was a word that was called the stronghold of Zion, and it was the Jebusite stronghold before King David took it. Now in the Bible, you find lots of references to Mount Zion, and oftentimes Zion speaks of only a hill. It's a topographical uh, offshoot, upshoot between two valleys in Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley and the Tyropian Valley. Sometimes the definition is widened to mean the entire city of Jerusalem. Sometimes it refers to the entire nation of Israel. And principally, we find it referring to the kingdom age and the nation of Israel under the control of the Messiah, like in Psalm 2. Here is a beautiful promise in verse 15 where God will make Jerusalem, Israel, Zion, an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. The city of Jerusalem is the geographic center of the earth biblically. In Ezekiel chapter 5, God said about Zion, I will set you in the midst of the nations. And if you're to look at a map, you find that Jerusalem is located on the land bridge that connects Europe, Africa, and Asia. It's right there in the middle. I know some of our maps have the United States of America. We're the center of the earth, but actually Jerusalem is. And in the Bible, did you know that east, west, north, and south is always relative to the city of Jerusalem? North is north of Jerusalem. South is south of Jerusalem. West is west of Jerusalem. East is east of Jerusalem. So it's the geographic center of the world biblically. It's also the salvation center of the world spiritually. The only place that God ever secured for the salvation of mankind is just outside the city gate, the Damascus gate, at a place called Golgotha. When Jesus was having a conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria, and they were talking about Samaria versus Jerusalem, Jesus said, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Jerusalem is also the center the storm center of the world prophetically. Every world ruler today knows that what goes on in Europe or in China is not nearly as volatile as what goes on within the borders of Israel, principally Jerusalem. And God said through the prophet Zechariah, I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone or a stone of offense for all peoples. But what I love about this passage is that Jerusalem is the glory center of the world ultimately. Ultimately, the convergence will be there in Jerusalem, in Zion. You might say that in Jerusalem is a kingless throne. The throne of David has not been occupied for 2,600 years. In heaven, there is a throneless king. 
Jesus is seated at the right hand of his father's throne, but he has promised his own throne. And when the throneless king and the kingless throne come together and Jesus occupies the throne of David in the millennium, that's when there is fullness, as the Bible predicts. Let's finish this up and we're quickly coming to our end. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and the milk of the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze or brass, I will bring gold. If you go shopping in Jerusalem, all the shops have brass decorations, menorahs, uh, all sorts of things for your home. That will be replaced in the kingdom age with something more valuable, gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. Imagine every politician righteous. Wow. No more elections, man. Just Jesus in control. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Just think of it. Even the streets, the gates are going to have spiritual names. Hallelujah Boulevard. Praise Street. (laughs) The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light and your God your glory. The sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. The days of your mourning shall be ended. Also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, a small one, a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Now, some of this language sounds very similar, and you can go back and read it on your own. Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 that describes the luminescence of New Jerusalem, where the glory of the Lord shines in that place, and there's no need of lamp, no need of moon, no need of sun, but the Lamb, Jesus, and the Father will illuminate the holy city. Now, chapter 61 of Isaiah is noteworthy because Jesus opened up his public ministry by quoting from it. And it shows to us, and it's fortunately a brief chapter, it shows to us, it demonstrates that whole idea we've told you about in the past of near versus far prophecy. Something that speaks of the fulfillment at one point, but another fulfillment later on. Now, What I'm speaking about here is Jesus' first and second coming are all mentioned within the scope of a couple of verses. Something that would happen within a few hundred years versus something that would happen within a few thousand years. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Pastor Chuck spoke out of that section this morning in his study where Jesus in Luke chapter 4 was handed the scroll in the synagogue 
And it just so happened, you know better, that it was Isaiah chapter 61. He was handed the scroll and he read it. In the synagogue service, it would open up with a a prayer of blessing, invoking blessing upon the nation of Israel. It would be followed then by the Shema, as the rabbi would say, Shema Israel Adonai Echad, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Followed by another prayer, then the reading of the text. And imagine, picture yourself there. Jesus reads this section. And all those Jewish men in the synagogue are rubbing their beards going, That's right, amen. (laughs) Until Jesus closes the book. And he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they understood what he was saying. He was claiming to have fulfilled Isaiah chapter 61. But the cool part is the comma. For it says Jesus suspended his reading. Notice what it says. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then there's a comma. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus closed the scroll or closed the book, and suspended his reading after proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. Why? Because when Jesus came the first time, that's what he came to do. Save people from their sins. He's proclaiming the day of grace. The comma has lasted about 2,000 years. It's one of the longest commas in history. When he comes the second time, not as the lamb, but as the lion of Judah then the next part will be fulfilled and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. That's the extreme makeover that Zion will have in the future. A facelift of glory and beauty in the kingdom age. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. And the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. An entire nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles, their offspring among the people, and all who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments 
and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is actually a beautiful Old Testament picture of imputed righteousness, whereby the nation realizes I can't cover myself by spinning my own web, my own works. I have to rather trust in his righteousness imputed to me, given to me, put to my account. It's a beautiful picture of it. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So, both spiritual and physical improvements are on the menu for the nation of Israel and for the world. Are you looking forward to it? I am. You know, one of the great things about eternity is that God is going to use eternity to display His love for you. God showed His love, demonstrated His love for us on the cross in sending His Son. But Paul indicates that it's going to take God really all of eternity to totally unfold His love to you. In Ephesians, he writes, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. So, the best is truly yet to come. There were two women. They were dying in the same town on the same night. One was a Christian. The other was an atheist. The atheist was dying in her bed, and she was surrounded with her friends and family, and there was sadness in her eyes and despair, and she cried. Her last words were, I'm leaving home. I'm leaving home. The Christian dying on the other side of town had her friends and family, and she also had tears of joy. And she said, I'm going home. I'm going home. What a future we have to look forward to. What a great God we serve with a great plan. Lord, to that end, we thank you. We praise you. No matter where we're at, no matter what we're going through, we're going home. Thank you for providing that home. Thank you, Lord Jesus that in your Father's house there are many mansions, and you have gone to prepare a place for us. May we hold on to that hope tonight. Some are struggling. Some are worried about the future. Show each one that the future looks good as we're in your hands. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. And thank you for your people who have gathered together, bless their week. May they wait on you, mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand? Someone has said that the darker the outlook, the brighter the uplook. And we're looking up, as Jesus said. When you see these things begin to come to pass, look up. 
because your redemption is drawing nigh. Isaiah tells us that which the Lord wants to do for each of you this evening. The oil of gladness for your sorrows. Beauty for your ashes. That you might be known as really the workmanship of God. God wants to work in your life this evening and all he is seeking is permission to do it. The pastors are down here at the front. They're here to pray for you. If you would like tonight to let the Lord just work in your life, his work of love and grace, I would encourage you just come on forward and let these men pray for you tonight that you might experience the touch of God's love and God's grace in your life. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples concerning prayer, he said, when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father speaks of relationship, and that's probably the most important thing in prayer. A relationship. If he is your father, then the door is open always for you to come. But then the prayer went into a looking forward to the future. To the bright future that God has promised. And the petition is for that to come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here on earth, even as it is in heaven. And how we long for that day when his kingdom will come and when the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord and his will will be done even as it is in heaven. Let's close with that Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the This is the end of this message. If you would like further information on any of our products or to receive our free catalog, 
Contact the word for today. The address is P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. Or you may reach us by our toll-free number, 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-WORD.